Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's good to be together as God's people. And if you'd open your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, we'll continue to study through these minor prophets. They might be um, unknown to you or known little, and uh, our goal is to go through them, see what God has to say to us. Um, as you go there, uh, as we started two services last week, um, it's kind of one of the unknowns, how will it shake out? How will it break down? And um, you're never quite sure how that works. And, um, and so someone asked me, how, how did it go? Well, we had 228 at first service and 223 at second. So pretty close, I'd say. Uh, and so, it, of course, first service had a little more. So you must be the more spiritual ones. But don't tell second service people that, because I'll tell them that they are. But the, so that's exciting, and, and we're glad that God is at work. And we're going to look at some verses. Zephaniah chapter 2, we'll start with verse 4, and then we'll go through verse Five of cha- or verse 8 of chapter 3. This prophecy of Zephaniah, and all the prophets for that matter, um, really comes across that all nations are answerable to God. Now, as we go through this, I want, it's really important for us to understand the context of our day. Uh, this message, this book would not be really popular in the world of academia. Um, there's a reason for that. Because this truth that we're going to read runs counter to every secular tendency. Our tendency in our day is toward pluralism. And today's pluralism is not merely the recognition that people are different or have different religions and must be given the right to live and worship differently if they choose. But it's the erroneous belief that reality itself is pluralistic. That's the problem. That's the real erroneous teaching. Is that just because people believe differently... It doesn't mean all of it's right. There's only one reality. And so we need to be careful as God's people that we don't uh, buy into that lie that there's multiple realities and thus pluralism is right. It's not. There can only be one true God or one true religion, if I may. There's a second tendency, and boy, this isn't hard to miss either, toward compartmentalism. It's the conviction that various areas of life need to be kept in separate places. And that one area not only need not, but should not have a bearing on another. This results in the idea that a person must not bring his conviction into the real world. Or into the politics. Or into the schools. Or into commerce. In other words, if you're a Christian, you keep that in your compartment. Don't let that come into other areas. That's why you can have a coach fired because he decided he wanted to bring his faith into the other part of the world. His coaching with players who willingly volunteered to pray. And so he gets canned because of this idea of compartmentalism. And the, exa- the examples are numerous and numerous. Listen to our, some of the debates with some of our candidates lately. Some are getting attacked because they're bringing their faith into politics. But that's not at all what the prophets would teach. The prophets, certainly Zephaniah, would be utterly opposed to these ideas. They could not even conceive of a fragmented world where claims of religion would have no bearing on anything else. Quite the contrary. The God of the prophets is the God of the entire universe. And this makes him God of all life and all people. Whether this is acknowledged by the individual or not, that doesn't change it. The prophets were convinced of this truth, that there's only one true God who is also the God of the Bible and that all people will give an account to him. Now, I say that on the front end because these verses really speak to this. 
and they run countercultural. But it's important we understand them. You see, Judah had neighbors, neighbors to God's people. They lived on the north, the south, the east, and the west. And these neighbors are addressed here in Zephaniah chapter 2. If you look at verse 4 through 15, let's read along, and I want you to find, pay attention to what is said to these neighbors. For Gaza will, will be abandoned, and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitant. So the seacoast will be pastures, and with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks. And the coast will be, will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortune. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon, which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them, and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. This they will have in return for their pride, because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrifying to them, for he will starve all the gods of the earth, and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. Flocks will lie down in her midst, and all beasts which range in herds. Both the pelican and the hedgehog will lodge in the tops of her pillars. Birds will sing in the window. Desolation will be on the threshold, for he, he has laid bare the cedar work. This is the exultant city, which dwells securely, who says in her heart, I am. And there's no one besides me how she has become a desolation, a resting place for beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. Now, as we read through that, you're probably going, good night. There's a lot of detail in there. That'll make a lot of sense in there. Um, as I read through this, believe it or not, I thought of, I grew up in Crystal Lake, Illinois. And uh, we were in a neighborhood, and we had normal neighbors, like right next door. And um, it was a wonderful neighborhood to grow up in. You could ride your bike, felt safe. And you knew your neighbors that we actually talked to each other. We didn't text them. <laughs> uh, we talked to them. And it was fun, but we had one of our neighbors right next door to us, and she was, he was pretty cool, he was, but she was a little different. And uh, whenever it rained, she would do something which really puzzled us, is she'd go out and rake her mud. I'd never seen anyone rake mud, and I never quite understood what she was doing. And, uh, but she would inevitably rake it on our lawn. And so you'd kind of, as we mowed the lawn, we're kind of bouncing around because there's big clubs of mud. And finally, it was raining one day, and Dad pulled up, and there she's raking mud. And uh, Dad walks up and says, hey, mud raker, you want to keep it off our lawn? Um, what Dad was saying is, you're our neighbor, and you're not supposed to rake stuff on our lawn. It's bad enough you got mud. It's bad enough you're raking mud. I mean, get a life. But you're raking your mud on our lawn. Keep it off our lawn. You see, God was speaking to Judah's neighbors. And say, you're playing in your own mud, your own sin. If that's not bad enough, you're raking it on my people, Judah. And so the judgment's dual here. For their own sin and their own ignorance, 
but also because of the effect they've had on God's people. And so let's look at these neighbors. The transition sentence, Gaza will be abandoned, announces a major shift and a focus to the woes against Judah's many neighbors. In those days, the day of the Lord spreads out beyond Judah. Cities and regions named in judgment are Judah's nearest neighbors and enemies. And we start with the Philistines, verse 4 through 7. They're also called the Carathites. They're neighbors to the west. The Philistines were part of a sea people. They lived along the coast. And they lost their autonomy to the, in the Davidic monarchy, in David's reign. But they retained their cultural identity along the southern coast of Palestine. From five Philistine cities formed a confederacy that was fiercely and frequently in competition with antagonists towards Jerusalem. And we see them listed there. Gaza was a major town of the Philistines on the southern coast. Ashkelon was another Philistine city, was along the coast. Fifteen miles north of Gaza was Ashdod, and fifteen miles north of Ashdod was Ekron. Now, some things are said about these cities. First of all, the cities will be destroyed. Prophet's pretty clear here. The people will be destroyed. And then verse 7, the land will be given to Judah. In other words, there's survival. You mentioned, you see the survival of these shepherds, these sheep. These sheep pens would be in the southern coastal region. And it's really, if you read this, it's kind of like the first word of hope for God's people. The remnant of the humble survivors, they'll find pasture. And this metaphor is all over the Old Testament. God's people being sheep. It's really an image of humility before the Creator. The remnant will find pasture. And they're going to lie down in houses built in Ashkelon. And the arrogant of Judah built houses but did not live in them. Now Yahweh will provide houses for them, interesting enough, built by another arrogant people. In other words, they're going to build houses, they're going to foot the bill, and I'm going to give them to you. It's a promise for them. And as they heard this prophecy, they're like, man, we need some good news. And uh, there is some good news, but we're going to talk a little bit more about the not-so-good news in a minute. And so they're going to enjoy, if I may, their enemies, the arrogant neighbors who are going to build houses for them. And this remnant will relax and lie down to eat. God will care for them because he's a good God. But then he speaks against Moab and Ammon in verse 8 through 11. They're to the east. The Moabites and Ammonites were cousins to the Israelites through Abraham's nephew Lot and his daughters, which is a sick story in the Old Testament. But Yahweh had given them the territory to the east of the Jordan. And he protected them. Edom was protected because of Esau. And Moab and Ammon were protected because of Lot. We're going to see an interesting irony brought up here in these verses. And so this this judgment comes against Moab and Ammon. And the hundreds of years of history between them These two nations and Judah was filled with hostility. Moab and Amnon, we're we're told in verse 8, were arrogant against Judah. In verse 9 through 10, we're told that they're going to be destroyed because of their arrogance. Now you see the jealousy of the Lord Almighty. Look at verse 8. He says, my people. You've been arrogant against my people. In verse verse 9, my nation. In other words, I'm jealous for my people. You're attacking them. You're slinging mud at them. You're arrogant towards them. In verse 10, Zephaniah echoes his jealous 
commitment, a corresponding phrase, the people of the Lord Almighty. That's who they are. The Lord of hosts refers to God Almighty. And God declares he will punish the neighboring peoples because of their taunts, because of their insults, because of their threats against his people. And he kind of sums up all that as their pride. They're an arrogant, prideful people. An insult or a threat against God's chosen people amounts to an insult and a threat towards God, the one who chose those people. These previously protected cousins. Now remember, Lot was protected from Sodom and Gomorrah. Now these people who come in the lineage of Lot, look what it said about them. Verse 10 and 11. I'm sorry, verse 9, second half of verse 9. Surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah. Lot's lineage, protected from Sodom and Gomorrah, now these people will be judged like Sodom and Gomorrah. Very interesting. Those words must have shook them up. And then verse 10 through 11, go talk about all these people will ultimately worship God. This they will have in return for their pride because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. Verse 11, the Lord will be terrifying to them. For he will starve all the gods of the earth and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. It seems like this is so unique that as Yahweh's justice, as God's justice is expressed, his desire for the nations In place of pride, Yahweh will become awesome, terrifying to them, will cause them to bow down. We're told in Hebrews, our Lord is a consuming fire. And all peoples, whether they worship him or not, one day will bow down because of who he is. It seems to be where he, uh, Zephaniah is kind of pointing out here. And I was reminded of this, that God's desire is not simply to eradicate arrogance, but to replace it with true worship of all peoples, in all land. In all of prophecy, there's a larger goal that awaits than just God executing his judgment. God invites all people in all places and in all times to bow down and worship him. That's the invitation for all of eternity. And so God's not some killjoy. You just want to throw darts and judge people. He has a much greater goal so that they come to worship him, the one true God, not one of many, but the ultimate reality. And then verse 12 talks about another neighbor, Ethiopians, and it's not said much at all. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. These are neighbors to the south of Judah. These two will be judged, also called Cush, who come from the line of the sons of Ham, the son of Noah. Therefore, we find Cush mentioned several times in genealogies. But we don't learn much about these people. The only inclination or hint we get about them is found in Isaiah 18. It's really the only extensive passage which pronounces a woe against Cush without really giving a whole lot more reason than Zephaniah. But Isaiah 18 does tell us about these people is that they're tall and smooth, whatever that means, (laughs) and that they're arrogant and aggressive and powerful. So that's all we really know about them. But Zephaniah says they will be judged as the neighbors to the south. Then we get to the Assyrians in verse 13 to 15. Judgment here is given in greater detail. From the north, actually Assyria was from the northeast, but they often came down when they came and attacked, they came from the north. Thus they're considered neighbors to the north. 
we have judgment in greater detail. Now, Assyria's power and cruelty were legendary. We talked about, if you remember, study Jonah, the Ninevites, which was the, you could say, the head, head place in Assyria. They were a brutal, ruthless people. We read, studied that in Jonah. And this is Assyria. Nineveh and Assyria, when destroyed, will become a home for all kinds of God creatures. I always thought this was interesting and shook my head over it a lot this week. He will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, parched with the wilderness. It's interesting. Assyria was known and was famous for its irrigation system. Now, as I read that and thought about that, I thought, then look at the prophecy. You'll be parched like a wilderness. No matter how good your irrigation systems were, when God's judgment comes, he'll dry it up. So there's a certainty in that. But he also goes on to talk about this. Negatively, it's going to be dismantled as a human habitation. Verse 14, flocks will lie down in their midst, beasts which range in their herds, pelican and the hedgehog, and uh, goes on to talk about will lodge in the tops of pillars, birds will sing. And then it goes on to talk about there will be no human presence there anymore. It will be desolate, but for these beasts. And so it will be dismantled as a human habitation. In utter desolation refers to a deserted human habitation. No one will live there. But verse 14 and 15 brings this figurative description. Now follow along. The description is at the tops of the columns where birds will roost. And he moves down to the windows where birds will call. And then to the doorways where rubble rests. And finally the plaster will fall off the cedar beams. The cedar of Lebanon. If you remember the cedar of Lebanon, Lebanon is part of building God's house. And it was inter- it's interesting to me, is it seems like as we, this plaster fell off these beams, these cedar beams, in a sense it was a visible sign of God's glory or reminded of God's glory in the temple. In other words, only what is God, of God will remain. I found that interesting. And so this proud place will become a home for a humble creation of wild beasts. Where once there was a great people who ruled over all, now there'll be no people. But just wild beasts will be the habitation. And this arrogance, this people who trusted in themselves, will be judged by God Almighty, the one true God. Not one of many gods, but the one true God, who's the ultimate reality. He's the one who's only qualified to judge. Now at this point, if you're Judah, you're thinking, good, go get them. These are some bad neighbors. And God says, whoa, chapter 3 is coming. Now I want to talk to you, O Jerusalem. Zion, God's city. They took great pride, Jerusalem, in being God's city. In chapter 3, verse 1 through 8, here's what God says to them. Woe to who is rebellious and defiled, a tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail, but the unjust shows no shame. I've cut off nations. Their corner towers are in ruins. I've made their streets desolate with no one passing by. Their cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will revere me, accept instruction, so her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her. But they were eager 
to corrupt all their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Bad enough that the surrounding regions and cities dishonored God, but now the prophet speaks to those in Jerusalem, God's city, and said, you've been no different. You too will be judged. And note the words that describe their condition in these verses. They're rebellious, they're defiled, they're tyrannical, they're unlearning, they're not trusting God, nor drawing near to him. You see, when you don't trust God, you're going to draw near to something else that you'll find security. Abusive political leaders, these princes, these judges are highlighted. And if that's not bad enough, the religious leaders led them astray, noted by the prophets and priests. Now, verse 5 is a contrast. If you note, if they've gone through this description of all these people who are, who are wicked and arrogant and profaning God's people, then verse 5 said, but, but God's not like that. And it kind of stands in contrast to all the verses around it. In describing and declaring God's faithfulness and righteousness, it was made clear that God is their only hope. That all the people were rebellious. If they were to seek righteousness and find hope, they'd find it in God's character in his person, in his plan. Reminded that God is present daily. He does not fail. And this is the center and the core of every future hope. That God is present and that it will never fail. Now verse 6 through 7, God's judgments on other nations should have been a warning to Judah. God certainly had given them ample object lessons on the severity of judgment. Judah even saw God's judgment fall upon Israel. And still Judah didn't get it. Talk about hard-headed. You could say hard-hearted. Second Chronicles 36 points to a people who refuse to change. Verse 15 and 16 of Second Chronicles 36. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. In verse 17, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. He goes on to talk about how God raised up even their enemies to bring judgment. And if they didn't listen to the prophets, they didn't figure out or wouldn't listen to the fact that God was disciplining them using other kings and other nations, they didn't get it. Or chose not to get it. And it points to a people who refuse to change. It's a warning to those who have the excuses, I'm just set in my ways. This is the way I was raised. All those with excuses. This prophecy is really a compassionate. We have this book of Zephaniah and it comes across as hard. But it's also a work of compassion on God's behalf which beckons people to turn to him in repentance. Zephaniah is really a compassionate book when you look at it that way. There's two actions of God I need to highlight really quickly here. God's response to the arrogance. God is fiercely, you see it all through this chapter, God is fiercely opposed to false pride. From Adam and Eve reaching to take what belonged to them, to Satan's rebellion and pride against God, to the final arrogance of the nations in Revelation the biblical witness declares God is totally opposed 
to arrogance. Arrogance toward God stems from our natural tendency towards pride. It's the kind of pride that has become so much part of persons and societies life that it's assumed to be normal and healthy but it's not god's response to arrogance god's response to self-promoting pride is summed up in the phrase chapter 2 verse 5 the word of the lord is against you god is opposed to arrogance that's why james says humble yourselves under the mighty hand of god that in due time he would exalt you god's response to arrogance is highlighted here Also, God's use of nature and history. You see, God uses natural means to oppose the pride and arrogance in the world. All through the Bible, we read it. God used storms, earthquakes, rivers, wind, sun, wild animals, firefall, plagues to accomplish his purposes in opposing the arrogant. In the destruction of the northern ten tribes by Assyria, in the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, he also declared by his prophets that these warring nations were part of his creation and were instruments, even uses the word servants, of his judgment. And so we read in Zephaniah and reinforce all through the, the Bible that God uses nature and history to judge his people. And so God's response, not surprisingly, he responds to humility. And there's a little sprinkles of that throughout this oracle of judgment, that God responds to humility because he disdains, he hates arrogance. Well, let's wrap this up because there's some key applications here. You see, God's perfect judgments teach us much. And actually, they bring great peace in some ways. One is God's perfect judgments remind us that all will be made right. We have an inward sense of justice, that there should be justice in the world. But God's judgment on all people assure us the universe is fair and that all accounts will be settled We look at some brutal people in our world, sometimes scratch our heads and wonder what's going on. Be assured of this. Because of God's perfect judgments, all will be made right one day. God's perfect judgments also provide a motivation for righteous living. Allow the thoughts of God's perfect judgments to keep you from hurtful and foolish paths. You see, there's a road away from God which robs us of all things worth living for. And Zephaniah calls all generations to take this path, this path of righteousness. Number three, God's perfect judgments enable us to forgive others. This is important because we realize, we need to realize it's not up to us to take revenge or even want to on others who've wronged us. God is just. We can leave that in his hands. God's perfect judgment enables us to forgive other people and let God worry about what was done to us and to exacting revenge. And number four, God's perfect judgments provide a motivation for evangelism. You see, the stakes are awful high for those outside of Christ because decisions made in this life will affect people's destiny for all of eternity. And I think it's right that we feel in our hearts And our mouths echo the appeal of of Ezekiel, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. We have good news that Jesus Christ came down and paid for sin. It made it possible for people to escape judgment and spend eternity with God. That's the good news. The bad news is that those who persist in their rebellion and arrogance, what waits for them is a history and eternity without God. 
forever. It's only right that we hold out this message that God is going to execute his judgment one day. If you don't know Christ, I have two questions for you this morning. Do you want something better than anything you've ever known? Or do you want something more terrible than your worst nightmare? What is it you want? What is it you would choose? John 5.24 tells it very straight. Jesus speaking, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of God and the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And right before that, this verse 24 is what I really want to read. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, believes who him has sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. You see, the only way is through Christ. There is no other hope. There is no other way to escape God's judgment except through Jesus Christ. And if that's a decision you have not made, I want to warn you, outside of Christ, there's only the fearful expectation of eternity separated from Him. The Bible calls that hell. And this morning, if you're like, I don't think I know Jesus, come see me. I I don't want to be flippant and try to solve it all in a two-minute explanation. Come see me. We need to talk this through. It's the most important decision you ever made, and it's one that has eternal ramifications. Come see me. And for all of God's people, God's perfect judgments have much to teach us. Don't try to belittle them. Don't try to ignore them. There's much in them to teach us and to motivate us, not only towards righteous living, but motivate us to share the wonderful news of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as I read more and more in these messages of these prophets, these largely, it seems, ignored prophets, just reminded how great you are, how awesome you are, and how often we're tempted to approach you as some kind of flowery God who is just some benevolent deity who would never even consider judgment. Yet we're reminded this morning that you are a God who is utterly holy, completely separate from any person and any people. You are transcendent in that way, set above people, high and holy and exalted, as we sang about. As we sang earlier, you will reign forever. God, we're reminded of that in this prophet that we dare not approach you flippantly. God, that all arrogance before you will be dealt with one day. Lord, you reminded us the futility of shaking our fist against you. Help us to never forget that, God. To be able to look at who you are and approach you with a soberness. That you are a great and awesome God. And for those of us, God, in Christ, help us to balance that. Lord, to be free to live in your grace and one in your grace, experience the freedom there is in you. But Lord, to never forget who you are and to worship you as you truly are. 
Lord, my heart also goes out for those in this room and maybe those listening by DVD or on the web who might not know you as Christ, God. I pray for them. You'd open their eyes to see their need for you, the Savior. Open their hearts to be receptive to the seeds that your word has planted this morning. Lord, in all things, we want you to receive the glory and the honor. It's your name we pray, Jesus Christ.